Let's pray. Heavenly Father, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from Your Word. We thank You for Your Word, that it is inerrant, it is inspired, it is relevant, and it, uh, it is what we need. And we know that it is sufficient uh, for everything we need for life and godliness. May we believe that and live it out. And so as Your Word is preached, may it be accurately and faithfully preached and give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, and to act upon these glorious truths. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. got a question for you to consider as we come to the book of Genesis today. Can God do anything? How you answer that tells me a lot about your theology. Let me just tell you a little story about uh, my, myself as we think about that question there. Remember, I got a when I was 18 years old, I got a job at the hospital where my mother worked, and I had uh, I had unsaved workmates who loved to constantly tease me. And my, one day, my uh, it, was, it was at I think it was lunchtime, and uh, they were teasing me yet again. And they asked me this question: Can God make a rock so big that He can't lift it or pick it up? And frankly, I, I was getting really frustrated. These guys were just just constantly after me, wearing me down. I hope this, the answer I gave that day was from the Holy Spirit and not my flesh. But what I did say was, God is not the author of confusion. And I just left at that, went, walked away, went back to work. But that brings up this, this question, can God really do anything? Uh, it's kind of like this, can God make one plus one equal five? Can he? And of course the answer is no, if, in case you're wondering what the real answer is. No. And why is that? Well, it has to do with God's very nature, who he is. There are things that even God can't do. Now, I hope that's not surprising to some of you, but that, that's true because of who he is. God is self-limiting. So what can he do? Well, God can't do things that are contrary to his own nature. Say, is that in the Bible? Yes. Let me just tell you a few references here. For example, number one, the Bible says God cannot deny himself. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he, that's God, remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Number two, God can't lie. Titus 1 verse 2 says, In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies promised before the ages began. Notice it says, God, who never lies. Why can't God lie? Because God is true. Number three, God can't be tempted to do evil, nor can he tempt any man to do evil. Is that in the Bible? Yes. James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Why? For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So this is an important truth, kind of foundational as we think about God's providence in the book of Genesis, particularly in one man's life as we think about Joseph today. And so this truth is very important to know before we can fully understand God's providence. And by the way, let me remind you what is providence. It has to do with God governing and guiding all aspects of his creation, including the animate and inanimate. I like this good definition 
coming from Leighton Talbert, he says this, quote, God guides and governs all events, including the free acts of men and their external, cir- or, yeah, external circumstances, and directs all things to their appointed ends for his glory, end quote. Now, notice in that definition, there's a few important things to take note of. Uh, in that definition, it, it does not say that God initiates or causes all events. Otherwise, you can make God the author of sin, if you believe that. Some events God certainly initiates. Some events God certainly does cause. Some events God certainly could not cause and initiate because they're inherently sinful. But Scripture is clear, nevertheless, that God governs over even the sinful choices and the actions of people. And we will definitely see that in the book of Genesis. Uh, In other words, what I'm trying to say is this, that God rules over and, and He uses sinful actions that He doesn't encourage and God doesn't initiate, but nevertheless, He governs over them. And by the way, if you're if you're confused with what I'm trying to say there, just kind of hang on for a moment because this might be a bumpy ride. Might be a bumpy ride. Some people have a hard time as they think about God's sovereignty and His providence. And and I think the, the best way to see it is that we go to Scripture here in in Genesis, and Genesis and Joseph illustrate this truth very clearly and explicitly. Uh, his story. Uh, for me, it has to be one of the high points of, of this mountain range uh, we, we can call God's providence. So the story here in Genesis chapter 37 opens with a very interesting and intriguing display of favoritism. By the way, God doesn't necessarily say that's, that's a good thing, but that's what happens here in Genesis 37. So let's have a read starting in verse 1. Jacob, that's one of the patriarchs, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years of old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told it to his father and to his brothers, 
his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. We'll stop there for the moment. Now what makes this passage intriguing to me is that Jacob's favoritism has a divine parallel. Jacob's display of favoritism toward his son Joseph is mirrored by God's display of favoritism toward Joseph. By the way, that's, that's shown in the giving of the two special dreams here that God is indicating God, His choice of Joseph for a very unique task. So Genesis 37 here fleshes out a, a number of principles regarding God's providence. We learn a lot about God from these Old Testament stories. Now remember, uh, I've said this before, don't forget this, the, the, these stories, these narratives, are a declaration by God of God. So as you read these stories, don't miss God, is what I'm trying to say. What is God teaching us about Himself, primarily? Well, let's, let's look at some of these principles. Number one, in His providence, God blesses, exalts, and uses whom He will. Now this is interesting, because... Contrary to all natural expectations, God chose to exalt and use the younger son in the family. Now, you might have a little difficulty with that, but because sometimes we have these cultural barriers. Okay, you need to understand, in, in biblical times, it was always the oldest. <laughs> it was always the oldest who was exalted and given these, these privileges. Now, you may remember that this was not the first time God worked this way. <laughs> if you just back up in Genesis, for example, Joseph's own father was not the oldest. He's the younger of twins, and he was chosen by God over his older brother. Isn't that interesting? We, we see it happening here yet again. And so that's, that's amazing when you consider the fact the eldest son usually was the chosen one. And so part of God's providential dealings in our lives is His right, His freedom to bless and, and exalt and use whomever He will. Whether it happens to be you or, or it happens to be somebody else. See, whether that seems fair to us is not the point. How we respond to God's providential choices, though, is the point. The, the next principle illustrates this fact very dramatically here. Number two, second principle is this. In His providence, God allows and uses the anger of people to accomplish His purposes. Now, the opening narrative here, Genesis 37, highlights three facts about Joseph. Number one, his righteous character. Now, you might question why he's going around talking these, these dreams, but nevertheless... It does show his righteous character. It shows his unique relationship to his father as well as his selection by God for, uh, at the moment, which was an unexpected destiny for Joseph. So question to ponder is this. What was the reaction of his brothers 
to the facts that were given, to those dreams? What was the reaction? Well, I mean, over and over again, we're given, you know, for example, look at verse 4. When his brothers saw their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Uh, That was kind of the normal response of these guys. And and can you blame them? Put yourself in, in their sandals for a moment. Put yourself in their sandals. Would, you know, your brother was saying these kind of things and your father was showing favoritism to this guy and he's getting the coat of many colors and you're getting nothing and so forth, right? How are you going to feel? By the way, do you suppose the Holy Spirit's repetition of the, the brother's hatred and envy is intentional? I don't think the Holy Spirit's wasting words here. Or, you know, some people think, well, you know, their reaction is beside the point. It's not really important in this story. Really? (laughs) Is their hostility to Joseph beside the point? Or is it the point? Well, look what Psalm 96, or sorry, Psalm 76 verse 10 says, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. Do we see the wrath of man, as in Joseph's brothers, praising God in this story? I hope you do. Don't miss it. Because that's one of the main points you need to get. This verse ought to be a comfort, by the way, to every child of God. It's showing us something. All anger, hatred are under God's governance. It's under His reign, His sovereignty. In fact, he uses those very sentiments and the actions they generate to accomplish his own will. He's using these sinful brothers to accomplish his purposes. So my friend, listen closely. Because if you think Genesis chapters 37 to 50 is somehow a record of how God managed to turn uh, bad into good or how God somehow managed to turn the mis fortunes into something good, then you've seriously misunderstood Scripture. (laughs) That is not what's going on here. Genesis 37 to 50 is a record how God is providentially accomplishing what was His sovereign purpose all along. This is His purpose. In other words, things never got out of control for God. Never. Not for one moment. The truth is going to become more apparent, by the way, as the story unfolds here so here's a question to think about does god have a big purpose in this story what's he up to i don't know if you thought about this but i think i think he does and i like i like the way uh leighton talbert says this quote What the larger story of Joseph illustrates is that God orchestrates all such human reactions, justified or not, sinful or not, to accomplish his larger purposes. In this case, God's larger purpose was to move Joseph and through him the entire fetal nation of Israel into the womb of Egypt to be nurtured and preserved from the corrupting influences of the Canaanites until he determined to bring them back out by means of a spectacular deliverance that would become the touchstone event for all of God's subsequent saving activity throughout history, end quote. In other words, 
there is something much, much bigger than Joseph going on here. Joseph is just a little pawn. And God's moving all these little figures around on his chess match to accomplish his purposes. Third principle to learn from Genesis here is that God's providence incorporates the faithfulness and obedience of his children. Now, it'd be easy to overlook this side of the story here. It's almost too obvious in some ways, because throughout the entire narrative of Joseph, he's never once cited as doing anything dishonorable or sinful. You might question what he, what he does or says, but God doesn't come right out and say it's sinful. He's consistently presented as someone who is obedient, someone who is pure, someone who is selfless, thoughtful, someone who is genuinely God-fearing. By the way, I'm not suggesting, and neither is God, that Joseph is sinless. God's not suggesting that he's perfect. Of course he wasn't. So my friends, at this point, we need to talk about a potential problem as as we think about Joseph. The providence of God is never intended to lull us into this lackadaisical attitude of fatalism. Where, where, you know, you just kind of go along, it's, you know, it's your destiny. And sometimes it's easy for us to think our actions don't really matter. So, some, that's, that's a pendulum swing you need to watch out for, for those of us who believe in the sovereignty of God. It's easy for us to think our actions don't really matter because, after all, <laughs> who's God? I mean, He's the supreme ruler of the whole universe. He overrules everything, right? Well, here's the point. Don't fall for this lie that your actions don't matter. Because your actions do matter. And you will be held accountable for every one of your actions. In fact, the Bible even says you're going to be held accountable for every idle word you speak. So, yes, you are going to be held accountable, and it does matter. Number four principle is this, that God's providence often encompasses human aid. Now, let's read on here, because we're going to see an an unnamed person enter into the story, and God uses him. Look at Genesis 37, verse 12. Verse 12, Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. In Israel that's Jacob, said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. The man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. So there we go. We see God's providence working through this unnamed man, giving aid. Now, what's the purpose of this text in the overall context? Well, those of you who know the end of the story, you, you, you know where this is going, right? It, it kind of seems to be an unnecessary addition to the narrative. 
in some ways. I mean, why do we need to know how Joseph found out where his brothers were? Well, my friends, again, the Holy Spirit's not wasting words. This little brief encounter is anything but incidental to the story. In fact, it's, it's very pivotal. All the events that happen after this hinge on Joseph's chance meeting with this unnamed man. And by the way, this is not designed to create panic over how many events and experiences in our life are dependent on chance. You can can blow your mind out and go crazy if you think about that too much. It's not designed to cause us to worry. In fact, the point's exactly the opposite, my friends. There's no chance and no luck about this whatsoever. That was not an accident. It was not a fluke. And we should not panic, nor should we worry as we go through life, because God sometimes uses human aid to accomplish His purposes in our lives. Number five principle is this. In His providence, God restrains evil plans and intentions that do not serve His purposes. Let's read on. Uh, We'll see how God does this in Joseph's life. Verse 18. Verse 18, they saw him, that's Joseph's brother, saw Joseph from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. (laughs) Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, He rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Do you see how God's restraining evil plans and intentions here? Many of the brothers wanted to kill him. Of course, he would have never made it to Egypt. He would have never become second in charge, the prime minister of Egypt, if that had happened. So that passage reveals God's providential protection and preservation of Joseph. So clearly, the immediate intention here of Joseph's brothers was murder. The fact that he was out in the wilderness, he's away from home, it just is a setup for them to carry out their plot. But God prevented the evil deed through Reuben's persuasion. So what was God doing? God's restraining the deeds of their, their sin nature here that would have not served his purposes god had a greater purpose to save joseph that would save his people the sixth truth we can learn or principle is this in god's providence god may allow the failure of good intentions according to verse 22 there's an interesting intention here look at verse 22 it says uh, so he returned to Judah and said, I have not found... Oh, wrong chapter. Verse 22. That's a great verse. Just wrong chapter. 
Verse 22 says, Reuben said to him, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. Now here's the purpose, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So Reuben's intention is what? He wants to get him back to his father, back to Jacob or Israel, get him there safely. Yet we know from the story that uh, Reuben's good intentions failed, of course. God providentially employed Reuben's absence to, to affect Joseph's journey to Egypt. So, so Reuben's not there when his brothers carry out their dastardly deed, which we can see uh, in this next principle, number seven, that God's providence encompasses apparent coincidences. Do you believe in coincidences? I've, I've added the word apparent there. Just consider this for a moment in this story. It's like a, it's like a complex orchestra of events and, and timings that had to take place here for God to accomplish His purposes. So here's Joseph while he's, he's out looking for his brothers who are looking after the, the family farm, if you will, the animals of the farm. Uh, they end up relocating to Dothan, which, by the way, just happened to lie along a major trade route going north and south, going down to Egypt. And so here, oh, just happened to be a caravan, by the way, working its way going south, going down toward Egypt. Just all happened to work out, right? And so when Joseph arrived, Reuben is not there. Reuben, uh, or Well, he he's there to persuade the brothers to spare his life, sorry, but then he, he somehow is, is, he's disappeared. He's not there when they decide to sell Joseph. So the caravan happened to pass by Dothan, not only after Joseph's arrival, but while Reuben is absent. And some people might call this a, a coincidence, but could it be called a providential coincidence? <laughs> Is it God accomplishing His purposes? I certainly believe so. The eighth principle is this. In His providence, God may allow us to be betrayed and cruelly sinned against. Has it ever happened to you? Have you ever been betrayed, sinned against? Now, you might feel sorry for yourself at that point, but uh, this is a difficult one to deal with. I mean, can we accept the plain statement of scripture and actually apply it to our own personal circumstances or is this somehow only unique for joseph it has no application for me well i I think i think there is application and implications and lessons to be learned for us well let's look at the conclusion uh, to the story here genesis 37 look at verse 25 Verse 25, Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit 
and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. We'll stop there for a moment. But notice, some have called this a providential relocation. Now granted, it wasn't exactly the the, the greatest way to travel. It certainly wasn't a first-class seat on some pleasure cruise, was it? But nevertheless, it was God's method to get Joseph to Egypt. He employed the evil deeds of wicked men for relocating Joseph to, to the place of his appointment. Well, that brings up questions sometimes in people's minds. For example, does that mean that God initiated their deed? Their evil deeds? No. God doesn't do that. Well, does that make God responsible for their sin? No. That's unthinkable. Well, does that mean God temporarily lost control of the situation? And, and, you know, God's sitting in heaven thinking, oh no, I didn't see that one coming. You know, I, no, of course not. So you might be asking, well, does, what does this mean for me then? Well, it means that no matter how unjustly you may be treated, there is someone who is in charge. There is somebody in charge. And this, Someone is governing for his wise purposes. And by the way, he's also doing it for your good. The story goes on in Genesis 37, verse 29. Look at verse 29. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons, all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, the officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So before we close Genesis 37, I wonder if you've noticed anything unusual about this chapter in your Bible. Some of you may have noticed there's something missing. If you look carefully through everything that happens, you might notice. Does anything or anyone seem to be missing in these events. Genesis 37 contains no reference to God whatsoever. His name is not there. You won't find God or Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh. You won't find any. It's not there in the entire chapter. It's like Esther. <laughs> and, and I don't think that's an oversight on God's part. I don't think that's a coincidence. You say, why, why would you say that? Well, because God's directly mentioned in every chapter of Genesis up to this point, minus chapter 34 
and 36 and 37. God's mentioned in all the other chapters. Why not this one? I think it's reflective of our perception of reality. It, 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 it's, it's kind of a mirror of our perception of reality. The non-mention of God here in Genesis 37 is a purposeful literary omission by God Himself that often is a mirror of our own experience. See, when you're struggling, you're going through a trial, a hard time in your life, it's very easy for us to question God and ask, where are you? It feels sometimes like He's not there, like He's absent. Often we don't sense God's presence or we may not see His hand of intervention, especially when things seem to be going wrong and you feel like you don't deserve this injustice. But the fact is, God is there. We know He's here. In Genesis 39, we're going to be reminded that God was present all along in Joseph's life. He wasn't just silent, and God was not merely present, but He's providentially active in Joseph's life intimately involved in Joseph's life. Now this, you say, well, okay, that's great. That's Joseph. What about me? (laughs) Does this have any relevance for me and for you? Well, the answer is absolutely. You, you, You should cherish the truth that when bad things come crashing down in your life, it doesn't mean that God has forsaken you. You might have this... Don't, don't think the way Job's friends thought. You're actually the, the attention of God. You are not alone. You have not been abandoned. In fact, there's a poem that reminds us of this truth, that you are never alone. You might be familiar with the, the poem, Footprints in the Sand, authored by Mary Stevenson. She says this, One night... I dreamed I was walking along the beach with the Lord. Many scenes from my life flashed around the sky. In each scene, I noticed footprints in the sand. Sometimes there were two sets of footprints. Other times there were one set of footprints. This bothered me because I noticed that during the low periods of my life, when I was suffering from anguish, sorrow, or defeat, I could see only one set of footprints. So I said to the Lord, You promised me, Lord, that if I followed you, you'd walk with me always. But I've noticed that during the most trying periods of my life, there have only been one set of footprints in the sand. Why, when I needed you most, have you not been there for me? The Lord replied, The times when you've seen only one set of footprints in the sand is when I carried you. God carried Joseph. God carried Joseph. But what about you? Does he carry you? Or are you tempted to feel alone, abandoned, forsaken by God? So, what should be our response to this truth? That God is sovereign. He is... His providence is working in our lives, and He does govern and guide all events. Well, number one, the first response you should have is trust. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will direct your path. 
So our careers, that means our destinies, are in God's hand. Not ours, but His. So it's not the hand of your boss. It's not the hand of the professor or the teacher. It's not the hand of the government that's guiding you. No one can harm you or jeopardize your future apart from the sovereign will of God. God's going to use that boss. He's going to use that professor. He's going to use the government to accomplish his purpose. So you can entrust your future to God. Number two, how should you respond to this truth? Look to God in prayer for all situations in your life. After all, who's in charge? I mean, where does your future lie? Who does it belong to after all? I mean, when your, your future lies in the hand of somebody else, it'd be a good idea to talk to that person, wouldn't it? And that's what God tells us to do. The third response should be then, some of us need to confess our sin. Some of us might be bitter. I've had to do this. I'm speaking from experience. I've had to confess my sin of bitterness because I get really angry when I'm slandered and I feel injustice coming my way. And some of us have been bitter and resentful against somebody else who has mistreated us unjustly and been very angry with us, malicious. But my friends, don't harbor this sin of bitterness. The Bible talks about bitterness being like a a huge root, and it can just take over. Confess it, forsake it. Why do we struggle with resentment and bitterness? We all struggle. Is it not because, well, I th- here's what I think, okay? I think it's that, that our plans have been dashed. I had my destiny all planned out, and now they've been dashed. It, it, my pride has been wounded, uh, I'm uh, having an identity crisis, and I don't like this. <laughs> and so I throw the toys out of cotton. Wah! Right? That's what I tend up doing. And so if we, if we want to live with less stressful lives, then you've got to learn there is a single agenda, and it's God's agenda, not mine. Where stress comes in is when my agenda seemingly clashes with God's agenda for my life. That gets stressful. (laughs) But if I live according to God's agenda, and everything happening in my life is His agenda, and I see it that way and believe it and live that way, there's little stress. The problem is we tend to live under two agendas, though, don't we? It's our agenda and God's agenda. And God, your agenda better match up with mine, or I'm going to throw a pity party here. And it becomes a tension and stressful. Let me give you some words of caution, though, as we think about the providence of God. Just a few things to think about. See, don't use the doctrine of God's sovereignty over people as an excuse for our own shortcomings. Now, I'm not talking about sins in this case. See, if, if, if you somehow failed to get that promotion in your job or you were fired from your job or while you were in school you failed an exam or you know those are the sort of things i'm talking about by shortcomings don't use the doctrine of god's sovereignty as an excuse for that maybe the first thing you need to do is examine yourself ask yourself did i have anything to do with this failure (laughs) 
right? You failed the exam. Maybe it's because you didn't study. Duh. Or, uh, you know, you got fired from your job. Maybe it's because you're late too much. You weren't up to the performance standard that the company set for you. Maybe that's why you got fired, right? Examine yourself first. See if that's the reason for your your, uh, performance. Number two, another word of caution is this. We shouldn't allow the doctrine of God's sovereignty to cause us to respond passively to the actions of other people that affect us. See, we should take all responsible steps within the will of God, that is, to protect and advance our situation. Okay, don't just take, you know, kind of like take the hands off the steering wheel of your life and say, you know, uh, you know, let go and let God. You know, you take the hands off the steering wheel and you run into a tree, it's your fault. Right? Okay, let me give you an example. Let's say, for example, a thief comes in your house. And this thief is in the process of stealing God's possessions. What are you going to do? Well, the, the wrong pendulum swing here is somebody looks at the thief stealing all of God's possessions and says, well, God is sovereign, you know, Hope you enjoy that giant screen TV. It was a blessing to me. No. I'm going to try to stop that thief who's stealing God's possessions because I'm supposed to be a wise steward of God's possessions, right? I'd be an idiot to let the guy, oh, here, let me help you put it in the boot of your car, right? I'm not going to help the guy. Wrong response. Don't be passive. Number three. We must never use this doctrine of God's sovereignty to excuse our own sinful actions, or, by the way, decisions, that hurt other people. See, God may choose to use our sinful actions to accomplish His will, but He he will still hold us accountable for our harmful decisions and for our sinful actions. Just like, did God hold Joseph's brothers accountable for their sinful actions? Yes. They're held, they're going to be held accountable on judgment day for that. Now, a scripture passage that can help us with the doctrine of God's sovereignty from his perspective is Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. Look at this. The secret things belong to Yahweh, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. That's a good perspective to have. See, we do not know what God's sovereign will is. We do not know how He's going to work in the heart of someone else. See, that goes into, as Deuteronomy 29 says, that goes into the realm of the secret things. The secret things belong to the Lord. They're not revealed to us. But we do know that God will work to accomplish His purposes, right? You do know that, right? And so what is ultimately going on here? Remind ourselves of this. so important. What ultimately is going on in Joseph's life and in your life? God's accomplishing His purposes. He's bringing honor and glory to Himself. And He's also doing it for your good. See, if you believe that, It will make all the difference 
in your life. <laughs> if you really believe that, there shouldn't be a clash of God's agenda and your agenda going on. Butting heads. Shouldn't happen. Problem is our bad theology. Bad theology drives us to bad methods. But if we have good theology, thinking the right things about God, then we'll have the right perspective and we'll believe that God is worthy of all. He is in charge. What He does is best for me and for the whole universe. And so then I can sit back, relax, trust, walk in His will, accomplishing His purposes for His honor and glory. May God enable us to believe Him, His nature, how He has revealed Himself to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this precious story here in Genesis about Joseph. May we see Your providential hand working, even though You're not mentioned in this chapter. But nevertheless, may we see You working. May we see You believe You working in our lives. So by faith, would You grant us the sight to see You even when it's dark. Even when we might feel alone or abandoned or forsaken and injustice happens to us. May we not lose sight of You. May we look to Christ, the author and finisher of our So may we do this not for our own sake, but for yours, for your honor and glory. May we believe that you are doing a work in us as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.